All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Welcome back to another edition of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger. Frank Saravalli in Philly. And Frank, how much snow you got there? We have gotten absolutely pelted. You know, I got to tell you, I am walking wounded. I, I'm not apparently not supposed to be around shovels because last time uh, we got two feet of snow last week in the last two weeks. And I was out there shoveling and I guess it got icy and I just absolutely ate it like ass over tea kettle uh, full on, like could see myself horizontal on the way down and it was not pretty. And then I was out there shoveling last night and I didn't have gloves on. I don't, I don't often wear gloves and I was shoveling and I guess my hand was cold and I didn't notice, but I got a blister from the shovel and it just like, I kept shoveling so long that it exploded and was bleeding all over me. By the time I came in, it's like a full blown mash unit out there. Who doesn't shovel wearing gloves? Like, wow, that's hardcore, man. It's hardcore. It's, it's not like me being a tough guy. It's just usually not that cold here. Like, our, the coldest it gets here is kind of like uh, minus 2, minus 3, 25-ish. Like, that's it. And so I don't really need them that often. Like, if it was minus 2 or 3, would you even wear gloves in Edmonton? Ah, uh, no, no, but I always have to wear a toque, though, because it gets a little chilly on the dome. But... <laughs> Uh, gloves. Yeah. I don't know. When I'm at the farm, I have to work with no gloves all the time because you can't do anything. But, uh, I, when I'm shoveling, I always wear gloves. doesn't matter. Wait, so tell, I, I we got, you, you touched on it. Like the farm, like 
I kind of knew you had a farm. Like, what, tell me more about your farm situation. Well, we've we've had our family farm since 1973, so um, basically my whole life. And my uh, my dad, of course, passed away 20 years ago, and so my mom's still out there. And I, I kind of joke, I'm just a hired hand. Uh, I'm in charge of all the the cattle stuff. And you know, we used to have 75 cows. We actually, for a while, we had more cows after dad died than when he was alive, which was kind of stupid. But we have about 250 acres, and we just run uh, hay and, uh, you know, bale the hay to feed the cows. And the cows is just kind of a hobby farm for me. I love it. So I get to take my son out there. We got some skidoos and some quads. And, yeah, so the farm is just, uh, that's where I grew up. We had pigs and chickens and horses and everything full-on farmer as a kid. I love it. So is it just you that runs or operates it? Like who... Well, we, my, 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 my brother, he doesn't really know much of the cow stuff because, you know, he was playing major junior hockey when he was 16. So he was never really home in the winter, but... He like the fencing and all kind of the, uh, you know, the grunt work. He definitely helps out with. I'm kind of more the cow person, but my mom, like, you know, we've got her a big sit down more. My mom's 75. She's tough as nails. And she's, <laughs> so we've got about three acres of grass just to mow. So she's got her sit down mower. It's unreal. Like that thing's kind of a toy. So she loves it. But so she does a lot of that in her garden. And then we, we do have a neighbor, Jay, who kind of helps out on the day-to-day -day basis sometimes. My mom needs like a quick fix here or there. But so it's kind of a combination of all four of us. And my sister and uh, her three boys and, and husband, they live about a mile away. So, uh, you know, if she ever really needs anything. And my nephews are now, you know, 19 and 17. So they can, you know, they can do a lot of the stuff that they need it. And then how, like, so what do you, what's the end goal with the cattle? Like, are these cattle that you... Uh, you know what? Well, the cows basically, like, we calve. Like, we, it's not a dairy farm. It's just straight beef. So we have a purebred Angus bull. And we have uh, cows. It's calving season coming up in April. And then, basically, I ship my calves in the spring. Uh, sorry, in the fall. And, you know, that's kind of about it. But, you know, my mom's going to turn 76 this year. So, like, I don't know how many more years we have the cows, to be honest. So it's, uh, it might be coming to an end, which, uh, which sucks. Yeah, that is tough. Now, do you eat, like, is that where you get your meat from? Uh, we'll butcher a beef every now and then, yeah. Like, a, a side of beef is, is pretty big, but you have to, uh, usually not, because you have to fatten it up to be a good, you know, 1,000, 1,200 pounds, right? So, back when when my dad was around and my, my brother and I were living at home with my sister, then we used to do it, and we used to butcher pigs and everything. Like, I'll tell you, if you've never had, like, even fresh farm eggs, People who have never had like fresh farm eggs and fresh cut uh, pork and bacon, like you haven't lived because it is so much better than the stuff in the stores. Uh, little known fact about me, eggs can't do them like in any way ever. It makes me nauseous even thinking about eggs. I can't, it's the one food I cannot eat. Wow. Oh, dude, I love eggs. My son, actually my seven-year-old, he uh, cooked his own eggs this past week. I was pretty jacked up, so. Oh, I, I think it it stems back to uh, a hockey incident. I had a kid that I played uh, peewee with that I just remember him throwing up eggs all over the bench one morning and <laughs> that, like I could never do it again. Hey man, that's fair. I get it. Some there's certain things in life like some people as you get it as an adult, you know that they, they have a bad drunk one time and you know they're puking up tequila and they can't ever drink it again. Uh, so I could see that if it, you, you were traumatized watching your teammate. Uh, chuck his eggs up i could see that yeah and i hope my wife doesn't end up listening to this podcast but um i i remember i i was seeing a girl in my early 20s and she you know she's like hey we wake up the next morning she's like hey do you like i know you don't like eggs but have you like you've never eaten my eggs before like let me cook them for you so i'm like okay 
honestly like sick right at the t- like i try to play along I, I, I they make me nauseous like i don't know what it is oh yeah the psychological allergy is what you have it's like with me with onions if i eat an onion i'm just like gross like i'm not allergic to it uh physically but emotionally i psychologically i am all right, that's way too much talk about eggs, but I am interested in hearing more as we go along about the farm. Oh, dude, you know what? Like, I'll, I'll get some video of calving season for you, and uh, we'll, we'll throw it up on the pod, which the is uh, fantastic. Life. Yeah, like, hey, you know what? You haven't lived, Frank, until you get the big glove on that goes all the way up to your shoulder because you're going in deep. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a hard no for me, dog. Uh, and you know what else is funny? This week, I had to... Uh, uh, my wife and I just the other day had to go in and upgrade our will because when we got married, we got a will and, you know, we've had our son now and we've never done anything. And I was like, I guess we should put him in the will. I didn't know, though, that once you have kids automatically, they're going the will. I didn't know that legally. But it's like now that we have a son, you have to, like, figure out, well, if you die, who takes care of your kid? Like, do you have a will? And if so, who did you choose? Who is your who is the person to take care of your kids? Uh, we don't actually have a will, neither my wife nor I, and I've, it's been on my list. Like I really should, my kids are six and four and you know, we're kind of right in that same neighborhood as you in terms of kids ages. And I just, I just never got around to it. And trust me, that's not me thinking that I'm immortal. Like if you, you, you can see me, I'm no physical specimen or picture of health. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I should get on that, but I think in the US it's a little different like i i don't know if it automatically goes to your kids i would assume they your heirs do get it you know whatever you leave which for me isn't a whole heck of a lot um but in in that sense um you know there's a whole probate court that things have to go through if you don't have it all spelled out so that's why we really should and if we had to pick uh it would probably be my parents i guess uh luckily um my parents live pretty close by five minutes away. Uh, my wife's parents also live pretty close by five to seven minutes away. So, uh, they're both young and active and involved and, um, you know, they did an okay job raising me, I guess. So, uh, huh. yeah, I think that would be pretty easy. The battle. Yeah. Like I, ch- I chose my, my, uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law would be the ones who, just because they live close by, like they live, you know, in St. Albert where we live, they live about three minutes away. So we thought for consistency's sake. And, but, you know, I kind of joke with them. I'm like, cause their daughters are, you know, uh, what, 17 and 15. And I'm like, you just, you start to plan about how life's going to be. Like it would be the worst curveball ever where suddenly now they get a, a 10 year old boy or eight year old boy that have to take care of it. I say that facetiously, obviously they do it, but it would, it's kind of like, it's a great thing to give to them, but it's also like, it's like, yeah, here you go. You know, your parents are enjoying retirement, but now they're going to uh, raise two kids. <laughs> yeah. Look, I mean, that that's like the worst case scenario, right? Yeah. Like, I don't even think about that part. Like they'd happily do it. Right. Yeah. And in your, in your brother and sister-in-law's case, like they wouldn't even miss you. So it'd be good. Well, that's probably true. Yeah. Well, plus, you know, they could get the house. So yeah, true. That's a big advantage, right? We have a hot tub. I think that's a big selling feature. I agree. Yeah. So, hey, let's get to some uh, hockey talk. We have Brant Myers coming up today on the show. Of course, uh, was an NHLer for many years. He just wrote a book called Painkiller. And, man, this thing is raw and real. And um, uh, he, he dealt with addiction for a long time. And now he's been clean for over a decade. And we'll, so we'll talk to him just about and, – and he's very open, Frank. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, th- there'll probably be some you – know, I would recommend to our viewers and listeners uh, there might be some some R-rated sections in that because Brant's just going to talk openly and honestly about uh, something that happened uh, during his addiction. So looking forward to that. 
Should we let Apple know that this is going to be an explicit content podcast? Yeah, potentially, right? It'll all be honest, though, like the truth. So that'll be, uh, that'll be fascinating. Now, before we get to that, there's a, a few things I want to discuss. Like, here we are. It's what? Uh, February 19th. The season doesn't end till May. Are we going to like... Are we going to have heart trophy talk every day? Does it not seem a little early? Well, is is are all these trophies going to come from the North Division? That was the thing I was wondering about. You know, this week it's like the that division is scoring so much more. They've played more games, so if you look at the leaderboards, pretty much the, you know they're taking over the top ten in every statistical category. It seems like the seven Canadian teams, and you're saying it's almost like. You know, not do we need different awards, but how do we measure all that out at the end of the season, particularly if we're in a position where certain teams are playing more games than others? It's going to be fascinating to try and, you know, wade through that voting process this year. And you're right. I'm a little um, nauseated since we use that word already. Uh, Just, you know, I, I get it. Austin Matthews is off to a fantastic start and I'm not slagging him by any means what he's done has been simply incredible to this point but like really the heart selkie like should we just the vezina as well like i mean like i get that he's been fantastic but geez it's every minute of every day it feels like the fawning over austin matthews and can he score a goal a game like what are we even talking about no he cannot score a goal a game like like alex ovechkin is the best I think he's the best goal scorer of all time. And in his best 56-game stretch in his career, he scored 48 goals, which is incredible. If Austin Matthews could get to 50, it would be insane. 50 in 55 games because he missed one due to injury. No, he cannot score at a goal per game. Please stop with the nonsense. It is nonsensical to continue talking about And I am happy to replay this on YouTube and play this clip again. You know where to find it if it happens. And I will sit here and I will eat my words. But I'd be absolutely shocked if it happens. So until then, until we get a stretch where he doesn't score for three or four games or only has one goal in five, that's the only time this will die off and it it can't come soon enough. Well, I think we have to blame Joe Thornton. And uh, Joe Thornton, a veteran, because uh, he was the one who brought up the Selkie, and now everybody's going crazy over it. But, uh, like, hey, Kane and Martin, like Patrick Kane, if we went by the rules of the wording of the rule for the heart, he might be the favorite right now because Matthews and Martin are on the same team. McDavid and Dreisaitl are on the same team. And I know Chicago's probably, you know, they're, they're overrated a little bit because they played more games. But Patrick Kane is, like, compared to those other four, he's kind of a freedom fighter. Like, he's playing with pre-suitor and, you know, a bunch of guys like that. I know offense to them but it uh by that wording of the rule i think patrick kane would be getting a lot of talk too but he won't be oh hold on a second though what happens if the blackhawks don't make the playoffs then we're back into the mcdavid debate from a couple years ago can you have an mvp on a non-playoff team and i i'm with you i agree but that won't stop people from making the kane case and i appreciate what he's doing this season but the hawks are the fourth place team in that division based on points percentage and i'd be very surprised if they end up making the playoffs over teams like dallas and teams like columbus that haven't played as many games and and need to catch up um and haven't really been great to start this season so um can chicago make it yes I, i still think they're a long shot at this point and again i'm waiting to see more 
No, I, I agree with you, but and I'm we're totally in agreement on the playoff because my my whole thing and the argument is if you if you don't make the playoffs, if you weren't on the team, you're you still don't make the playoffs. So your value to the team just isn't the same as somebody who's on a playoff team. Some people can disagree, and that's totally fair, but that's how I view it. Um, you you got to be in the playoffs to be a Hart uh, Trophy candidate. It will be interesting, though, Frank, when you mention that uh, if they go to uh, points percentage or games played, because now Florida and those other teams, eventually I think they'll catch up the games because it does seem like the NHL, we saw them rejig their schedule. Like, they're still planning, despite, you know, now Dallas has more games uh, delayed because of the weather. They're still planning to, to get all these games in by the end of the season. Like, man, Dallas is going to be playing four or five games a week. Yeah, I just don't know how it's possible. I mean, at a certain point, you'd have to think <clears throat> health and safety would be a, a big part of this. Like, you, you can't play 10 games in a 14-day stretch. Like, it just doesn't work. And that's what the Dallas Stars would be facing if they get to the point where the regular season was supposed to end on May 8th and the playoffs were supposed to begin on May 11th. I think there's a game scheduled May 10th. Like, how does that work? Um you could push back the start of that one series, but at a certain point, we're looking at mid-May, May 20th for Dallas probably, for instance, to get in all their games. Heard at the beginning because they had COVID, then they finally catch up a little bit. Now they have these power outages and weather delays, and it's been an absolute mess. Now, I think I just saw the ring. I think uh, Brant Myers is, uh, is ready to come in. Yeah, let's get to our guest on this episode, Brant Myers. Today on the DFO Rundown, a very special guest. He played uh, 13 years of professional hockey, including, of course, uh, many seasons in the NHL. And now he is an author. He just released his first book. It's titled Painkiller. It's a raw, very truthful read about his battle with addiction. Brant Myers joins us. Looking good at the hat, Brant. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm doing great, Gregor. Good to see you guys. Hey, uh, we appreciate you coming on. And um, man, you, your book, it was interesting. I, I, I read a, and I talked to you about it. Like this is something that's been in the works for like a decade yeah. for you. Yeah. Why was it finally the right time to release it? Um, well, it, again, this started a long time ago in my fifth treatment center. And uh, it, was, it turned out just for, I mean, like I was going, wow, I got to give back to the league. They just paid for the fifth rehab and... They were giving me emergency money every month to pay child support and my car payment. I was completely broke. Um, and I thought, man, you know, I, there's there's a program here somewhere. So I wrote a program while I was in treatment. And then I started thinking about um, just sort of a therapeutical process of just writing my my life down. And, and then it just sort of like took on a momentum of its own. Um, I was about halfway done when I got hired by the Kings. And uh, I said, well, I, I don't want to be releasing this while I'm employed by an NHL team. So I put it on the shelf for three years. And then when, I, when the job ended in L.A., uh, Penguin Random House called and said, hey, we heard you were writing a book. Would you like to finish it? And I said, sure. And uh, so that's what I've been doing the last couple of years. You mentioned five treatments. So like this book is it's very open and honest about your battle with addiction brand so i get we kind of got to go back to the start you know you grew up uh, in alberta and and then you know you played in the western hockey league you're a tough guy you're also a skilled player you know your last year a junior over a point a game guy but mm -hmm. you know you kind of made your way to the nhl as a tough guy and, and that's a tough role so was was the enforcer role what 
what helped you? Did you have to, to drink or do drugs to do the job or was, or was that, was that not related to, to really the base of your addiction? Oh, it had a part to play for sure. I mean, you know, I have a daughter that's 13 and my first fight was against a goalie at the Portland Winterhawks camp. He was a backup goalie and I was 15. I was listed by the team and we went out to center ice and he left his blocker on the bench and uh in his helmet and everything and there i am squaring off with the goalie and you know as a 15 year old i mean that's that's traumatic and and you know even though i did well in the fight that set me up for my 16 year old year and my dad told me that i had to lead the league as a 16 year old in fighting majors so i did um and it started from there and then i didn't really get into much alcohol actually because i was 16 playing in portland i couldn't get into a bar or anything uh but when i got traded to lethbridge that all changed the next year and i found that um uh when i'd go out the night before a game or after a game my my head quieted down um especially as a 17 year old year because then my dad said okay well you led the league as a 16 year old now you have to lead the whole canadian hockey league in fighting majors if you want to get drafted so i did that and i had 40 some fights as a 17 year old so i think it started really early and if you were to take away alcohol from me at the age of 17 and told me to get sober uh, i would have quit hockey why do you say that I couldn't have done that role without medicating. There's no way. There's no way that I could have, as a, as a, as my brain's not even developed. And here I am as a 17 year old trying to deal with fighting in front of thousands of people, uh, fist fighting with bare knuckles, uh, not only once, but I can fight three times a night. And then we're going into Saskatoon and Prince Albert on Friday and Saturday. It never ended. And it was, it would have been too overwhelming for me not to reward myself with, with, uh, uh, partying or however you want to call it after the game. And how accessible was it in junior hockey? Like how, how readily available could you get your hands on alcohol? And then how did you transition? You know, how did you find it and make your way to drugs after that? Yeah. So the alcohol, I mean, our favorite place after a practice at two o'clock when the, <clears throat> when we get to practice, I think it, right before school ended. And then at around four, we'd head out to, uh, Boston Pizza, the lounge in Lethbridge. And then we'd go to a country bar at around seven. So of course, alcohol was easy, easy to get. My first experience with cocaine was I went to a place called Peach Fest, which is in the Okanagan. Oh yeah. <laughs> and um, I was uh, at a bar and, and my, one of my good friends says, hey, come into the bathroom. And I went in and he took me into the stall. I'm like, what are you taking me into the stall for? And he pulls out this white stuff. And he rolled up a dollar bill back then and he said, uh, snort this. And, uh, I said, what is it? He said, you don't need to worry about what it is. So I did. And I'll never forget as I was washing my hands, I opened the door to go back out to the dance floor. And as I'm walking out to the dance floor, I felt like that scene in Saturday night fever where he's walking out and he's got his hand in the air and he's pointing and he's dancing. And it was the most incredible feeling I've ever had in my life. And I was laughing, dancing uh, up till six in the morning. And I said, wow, I said, if this is what this makes me feel like, this is another thing that I'm never going to give up. Brett, do you think, 
Did you have a little? Do you have an? Did you have an addictive personality? Was that part of it? Because a lot of people would be scared to try drugs. Yeah, but but Gregor, look at look look at the way I was living my. I was basically a gladiator at sixteen. You think I was yeah. scared of anything? I mean, <laughs> like there was no way that uh, you know you could have put me in any situation. And I was trained at that point to go in with no fear. So I have to assume that somebody in junior hockey, a coach or GM, like some people must have known that you were, you know, maybe drinking and then doing drugs or when you got to pro. So who was there somebody who took you aside the first time and said, hey, like, we got to try to rectify this? Yeah. So there's a story in the book about the Magic Mushroom Motel in Lethbridge. And uh, uh, they, uh, the brass heard about that. And, and our GM was a guy named... Uh, Bob Bartlett and uh, Bob calls me in and he's I, I was 17 at the time <clears throat> and he said I heard about what happened last night at the at the mushroom I said yeah he goes and you got that all going eh I said uh, sort of and he goes well um, I'm gonna send you away to your agent's place uh, to go uh, get your head straight so I got suspended from the team for a week and that never made the news like they never reported that um, so it started at 17 and then, I mean, man, oh man, it just, it never ended. I've talked to you before and I, I've written Brant a little bit about, you know, some of your darkest moments and, you know, your, your realization, you know, for your daughter that you needed to get clean. But I don't think we ever really touched on how you were able to get through daily life as an NHL player and a pro player. Like what was your, what was a typical day like for you in the life like, you know, what was your sort of cocktail, so to speak, to make it through the day? Well, game day or non-game day? Game day. Oh, game day, I never fucked with, with uh, booze or drugs. I mean, I was drunk. I was drunk from the night before or, or you know, really hung over. But I never drank on the game day. So my game day was the same as any other players who was after the game or on, you know, days off the next day where it got ugly. <clears throat> and do you think your teammates at the time, like had a sense, like did the team know what you were going Oh yeah. Uh, oh, oh yeah. I remember, I remember when I was in Philly and I was sitting next to cough, uh, in the practice room and, uh, he called me knuckles <clears throat> and I walked in, I had these two girls drop me off, uh, a block away from the practice rink because I didn't want anybody seeing me get out of this piece of shit car with these two chicks at 8 a.m. I walked in and he just came and sat down and he just said, holy shit, Knuckles. He goes, you smell and look fucking terrible. He goes, okay. He goes, obviously you can't skate today in practice. He goes, so what you're going to do is as soon as we get out on the ice and we do our warm-up laps, you're going you're gonna to do one lap. That's it. And then you're going to say that you pulled your back. So I did. I got out there. I skated. I could barely even do the one lap. I said, "Ah, oh, shit!" I tweaked something, and then I went back in the trainer's room. And and so guys knew, you know, they weren't idiots. And and you know, you, you got a guy like Paul Coffey, and um, you know, he he probably seen a little bit of that. Like you know, the '80s and the '90s are a lot different, I think, that, than the game is today, both on and off of the ice. But did did you ever have? Because you mentioned you went to rehab five times, Brand. Yeah. So. When was the first time? Who did yeah. what, did you put yourself in? Did they force you to go? How, talk about the first time you go into rehab. 
Yeah, so I believe how it went was we were playing Pittsburgh the night that Lindros got smashed by Kasparaitis. And then we played uh, um, the next night in Philly against them. By this time, Clarkie has already warned me twice that if he catches me drinking another beer, he's going to release me. So after the game the next night, I went out to this little watering hole. It was just a little lounge, and I went in with my suit on, and I had I took my hat, and I put it on really low, and I sat in a corner, and I ordered three, four beer, and I got up, and I went home. The next morning, Cough uh, calls me uh, at 7 a.m. He goes, Nux. He goes, did you see the paper? I'm like, no. He's like, well, you, they put you on waivers. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? So I get there, and... and Clark, he goes, uh, so he goes, you think you're pretty sneaky, hey? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, last night, he said, one of our head scouts was at this lounge. And there you were in the corner drinking beers. Because I told you I wasn't fucking around. He goes, he goes, I put you on waivers. And he goes, you're going down to, to the Phantoms. And then I went to the Phantoms. And the head coach was Bill Barber. And um, within, I believe, two weeks, they pulled me aside Paul Holmgren said, okay, we got a call from Clarkie. Get your stuff and get the fuck out of here as fast as you can. We want you nowhere nowhere near a hockey team. They went on to win the Calder Cup that year. And I called instantly the next day to the league. I didn't know who to talk to. I just phoned and said, I need help. And that's when Dan Cronin called me, flew to Philly, and we flew to Los Angeles for my first uh, treatment center. So it wasn't really the Flyers, like, you know, you look back on it, and, and I don't want to blame anybody for, for anything else like that, but you know, probably not the best way to deal with an addict is, is to give them a, an ultimatum because you couldn't stop, right? I'm sure if you want, it wasn't, if Bob Clark said, hey, stop, it wouldn't have been that easy. Well, no, they, they told me twice, so did Wayne Cashman. And uh, I was playing with my idols that I... I loved and looked up to and I'm in, I'm playing for the flyers and like, and I still can't stop, you know, I didn't know what, uh, alcohol alcoholism was back then. I thought it was a willpower thing. I didn't realize it was a disease that I was suffering from, you know, um, until I, <clears throat> until I got into treatment and they're like, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, you got to do this. And then we go to AA meetings every night and I'm like, AA, is that some type of transportation company or what is that they're like no 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 it's it's a recovery group so i'm like oh okay so it was all so new to me at 24 and i fucking hated every minute of it so you go through multiple times as you mentioned can you take me to you know your last trip oh and, yeah and how in that night and, yeah. and you knew you you needed to go again yeah yeah, so today's the 19th of February. Uh, yesterday was my 13-year sobriety date. Uh, so Congratulations. Thank you. So it happened yesterday, 13 years ago. Um, so I had a Coke dealer that I called um, every, every time I wanted it for a year and a half. And if anybody knows about cocaine, if you're drinking and you start getting drunk, if you do a little bit of Coke, you sober right up. Anyways, I joke about it saying the Coke dealer saved my life that night because he wasn't returning my calls and I was at my sister's for a dinner with uh, my cousins. And uh, I just went into the fridge or the freezer and they had these airplane bottles in there. So I just started drinking them and he he wouldn't call me back. I didn't have any drugs at that point. Um, So the next thing I know, 
I wake up. I, I just remember, look, my face was in the snow and I had my hands behind my back and these cops had their uh, knees in my neck <clears throat> and my sister was screaming. And, uh, you know, I get in the back of the cop car handcuffed and uh, I'm like, that fucking bitch. I'm like, she got me arrested. And they're like, whoa. They're like, Brent, we asked her if she wanted to press charges. She said, just take him home and put him to bed. So... I get to bed and I wake up and I call her and she said, you're never allowed in my house again. She said, the kids were hiding in the closet. You had a, you had a butcher knife out and you had it pointed at your stomach. And, uh, <clears throat> and she said, uh, you kept saying, do you want me to, I, I should just do this. I should just do this. And then I grabbed her by her throat. Um, and that's as soon as I grabbed her by her throat, her husband Donovan called, um, called the cops. And so when I woke up, I've never blacked out before. I lost total control and uh, I got on my knees and I just started saying a prayer. Um, and I cried for a while and I had a feeling this voice was just saying, you're, you're finally done. Like, it's over. And uh, I got up. <clears throat> Uh, Dan Cronin called me and said, we heard about what happened. Are you willing to go to long-term treatment? And I said, yeah. So I got on a plane, I believe it was the next day or the day after. And, uh, I didn't know how long I was going for. I thought I was going for a month, but I stayed for eight months. Eight months. Well, I mean, how, what was your longest stay before that? And how did you, how'd you do eight months? Well, they talk about in the program that you'll go to any lengths to stay sober. And I was willing to go to any length. And um, I, the longest time inpatient treatment I ever spent was 90 days. And every month they kept, the owner would come up to me and he'd put his hand on my shoulder and he'd say, we're just, we're going to keep you another month, Brent. And uh, I was, you know, fuck, man, I was just so grateful. Like I had nothing left. And so... And my daughter was born a week after I got into treatment. I, I, I couldn't see her. And they'd send me pictures of her. And I just, you know, fuck. It's emotional for me because it's such a hard day. Like it was. Uh, and then the 90-day mark hit and I was feeling good. And then they said, we're going to keep you another couple months. And then at six months, they said, we're going to put you into outpatient treatment for two months. And you get to go home. And that's how it started. And so during that stretch, that's when you write this program that yeah. you decide that you can help other teams. Yeah. How, you know, you start, you said, I think you said you started with 50 pages. How did you, you know, you, you put it all together and you, you get a team like the Los Angeles Kings that hires you and, you know, walk us through what that experience was like <clears throat> and how you, you know, well, that didn't, the Kings. yeah, I, I mean, that, that took seven, six years of, of, so when I went back to school in Calgary to get certified, uh, I went back and I, I, every year on my sobriety birthday on February 18th, I would go to the, to the FedEx box and I FedEx four of them to the NHL and four of them to the PA. And I heard nothing for years, but I did it every year and I was in LA and I was watching practice. I don't like to watch hockey but I was down there. My buddy was Andy Sutton was with me and Daryl Sutter walks out and he's like, Mizey. And I said, Oh, Hey, big D. 
And this is literally, if he doesn't, so I, I shake his hand and I say, okay, well, it was nice to see you, Daryl. Talk to you later. And as I'm walking away, he says, hey, do you want to go see Dean? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. If he doesn't say that, my course has changed. So I turn around, I walk back up to Dean's office and we're talking. And as I'm leaving, I said, hey, Dean, I said, I've done a, I've made a program um, for the league. I go, uh, I don't know if you're ever interested or whatever. I said, I can email it to you. And he goes, yeah, that'd be good. And then uh, I, I didn't hear anything. And a year later, once the, the arrest happened, that's when I got a call. And then I flew to L.A. and we had it done within a day. Brent, just listening to you talk and, you know, about your anniversary and, you know, everything that's gone on with your family. Uh, I did read in, in your book that you and your sister, you know, um, have reconciled, thankfully. And, uh, you know, she ended up having a, a painkiller addiction of herself. And, you know, uh, she overcame that w without the, the kind of the support that you had. So she's a pretty strong woman, for sure. Um, you can just hear the emotion for you. And so I, I would assume when you got involved with the Kings, like when you were talking to those players, like, everything they thought they could do you probably were like dude this is the minor leagues like guys i've done it and i've seen it and i've done it 10 times worse oh yeah and that was uh <clears throat> you know they didn't know me though gregor they didn't they didn't know who brant myers was i remember and it's in the book i was i was in the trainer's room with 10 guys and and drew dowdy was on the training table and he goes uh hey my, hey he didn't call me mizey at that point he's like hey brand he's like kind of player were you did you how many goals did you get you big goal score i'm like no dude i'm like like i got paid to protect plugs like you i'm like <laughs> you know like nah i wasn't a goal but it was the first time in my life where a, a, somebody in a dressing room didn't know that i was a fighter like or what i did and i'm like whoa i gotta start from scratch here and uh so it took a while but it ended up working out was that was that better though? Like, I don't know if, because, you know, I think most guys, they, they really respect the fighters because 99% of people couldn't do the job. A, they weren't tough enough or weren't willing enough to do it. So did it help you break down the barrier that they didn't know who you were? So you could just kind of show them, you know, who you are now rather than them watch YouTube of you fighting as a crazed guy in the nineties. Well, I think what helped is the LA Kings, uh, I believe it was in my, Towards the end of my first year, they uh, they did a, a like a black and white video, and they explained because uh, they were doing these film things every month or something, and they they did it on me, and I think that that really set into the players now. Oh, lifetime ban. Oh, rehabs. Oh, NHL fight or whatever. So they got to see a little mini clips of what I was all about, and I think I gained some instant credibility at that point. Um, and uh, so it sort of just eased the room, if you'd say. So you go through your experience with the Kings, and, and the first thing that, that slaps me is how reactionary this is instead of preventative. Like, it's not until they have arrests that you then get hired, and then you, you go through your course with the Kings, and a new GM takes over in Rob Blake and all of a sudden your services are no longer needed. I guess there's no arrest to that point. Everything kind of quiets down a bit. Why do you think that is like, why do you think this league is reactionary instead of preventative? It's a good question. Uh, again, it's, it's definitely not about the money. 
I mean, they can't say, oh, it's, it's financial. Let's get real here. Um, I don't know. I, I just, that was a, a situation that um, I didn't really understand. And it's okay. Like, I didn't really want to wrap my head around it too much. I felt really proud of what I did for those three years. Um, again, when it came, you know, <clears throat> the league has a lot of, uh, they spend a lot of money on other things for sure. Um, so for something as, especially financial, as small as that, uh, if you can get the right person that has the right credentials to do that, I don't, I don't know if there's a downside to it. I don't, I don't, I didn't see it. So that's, that was hard for me. Um, to, but it's also a role, like Dean said, you know, I've got to do reports on uh, everybody every couple of weeks. I got to give them to our, you know, president or, uh, sorry, the, the, it goes back to the owner. And with you, we don't have any. Um, and he goes, but I get that. He goes, this is a program based on confidentiality. So, of course, I can't give reports. So it was a, I was in a weird position, you know. Having, who do I report to? Well, I, if I don't report to anybody, it's a great year. So I was, so maybe that was part of it. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Do you find that there's still a stigma attached to it, to talking openly about addiction and, and alcohol abuse? And I mean, like, you know, just hearing you be so open about it, it just, it hits me how rare it is, but like let's let's be real and have some real talk for a moment. There's still plenty of guys in this league, you know, and not to mention, as you pointed out in your book, in the minor leagues that are prospects for these organizations that still have these very real problems. Like they're not going away. So why why is there a stigma attached in addressing them properly? You know what? I I, I don't know. I mean, um, again, it's. It's one of those things where like when I got left or when I left the Los Angeles Kings, I went home and I waited till the playoffs were over about a month later. And I, I sent out 23 proposals, 23 no's, you know, um, I don't know if they feel if they hire that position that they're admitting that they have a problem. But again, this is a, this is a, uh, you know, something that's not a reactionary situation. Like, why not have something in place just in case something happens, you know, and it's going to happen. Um, again, as I mentioned, uh, you've got your East Coast American League and your NHL squad. And, and I got to tell you, too, guys, I wasn't only working with players like now you've now you've got staff of like yeah. 20 people. So I was working with people that weren't putting skates on for a living. So again, it's, it was a bit of a head. I'm not a general manager. I respect their decision. Um, but at the end of the day, I just, I, I, I write something where I said, if you took all 32 GMs in a boardroom and I wrote out the program and said, here it is guys, here's how much I get paid. And here's what I do. Um, can you guys go up to the chalkboard or the boarding and write down a negative aspect of this program? And I honestly don't know what they'd write down. I don't know. Yeah, Brant, it's it's I, I read that in the book and it is interesting. Like I think society in general is, you know, some of the our worst secrets we don't want to talk about. We feel if we can keep them, you know, down below, then then no one has to to mention that. And you know, in, in your book, you, you had something similar to that when you were a young boy at eleven years of age, 
uh, Charlie, a big brother, you talk mm. about that. And, you know, he's kind of a predator and, and how you didn't want to tell your stepfather because you knew he'd probably get the shotgun out to quote you yeah. and, and take care of it. So, like, I think you really understand how a lot of times it's just natural to not want to talk about the, the ugly side of reality. Well, Gregor, let's put it this way. So let's say, Gregor, you're making $5 million a year, okay? <clears throat> and you can either talk to one of your employees that, that is responsible for signing your checks or you can talk to me and me and you have a have a bond because we're going through the same thing and I have a responsibility and a, and a, and a commitment not to say a fucking word to anybody. Who are you going to call? It's no different than if I had a, a Bob Probert that had 10 years of sobriety in the NHL working with the San Jose Sharks. Who, If you don't think I would have used Probert, you're kidding yourself. I had nobody to turn to, and I'm not going to turn to the doctors. I'm not going to turn to Dean Lombardi or anybody else that's going to say, you know what, that 650 grand you're making, mm, this conversation might fuck that up. Yeah. So no way. And that's why it was, an. they tried to have my position in LA where Dean goes, okay, your office is nowhere near upstairs. You're going to be right next to the dressing room. And in the program, I staged it out. And my one-on-one -on -one meetings, I staged it one, two, three. And the first, here's the two stages, guys. You guys got lots of opportunity to talk to me and work this out. But if you don't comply in stage one and two, well, I got to bring in Dean. So it was laid out pretty, pretty good for them to understand that they could talk to me about anything. And I, and I, was, I couldn't say anything. And, and I know that you, there was one case where Dean Lombardi, because you couldn't tell him, he just asked you, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how bad was it? You know, one of the players that, you know, um, basically was yelling and screaming with a girlfriend. And I, I don't know if it got physical. Obviously, you can't tell us. And I respect that. But when you're in that situation, Brant, and, you know, you're talking to these guys, can you kind of give us an insight of just, you know, how much anger and maybe fear and everything that goes into it that, you know, there is a lot of pressure to, to be in pro hockey, whether you're on the ice or even, in, you know, off the ice scout, whatever it is. And that, you know, sometimes, you know, people just, they don't have anyone to talk to and then it just builds and it builds and it builds and then eventually it explodes. And by then it's too late. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think that's like, any system, really. I mean, it could be the guy that's working at Canadian Tire with four kids back home trying to support, you know, a family uh, making 25 bucks an hour. I mean, there's pressures all over the world, and and you see people lose it. And it's no different than a young athlete. Um, but going back to back to Dean, it was great that he... He was so mad that he that he couldn't ask me who it was, and uh, but he respected it, and that was really the only way that it was going to work, you know. And sometimes with these kids, you know, I met with the player um, the next day, and we had a nice talk, and uh, I just explained to him, uh, you know, okay, here's what we're going to do, and he was he was awesome. So, Brent, aside from the book and, and congratulations, it's amazing to get that out and to see something uh, so honest and, and forthright, you know, bearing it all, so to speak. What's your plan? Like after the book, you know, you're, you're going to celebrate that and, and help promote. But what do you, you want to do next? Well, for me, I've, you know, financially, number one, I don't I don't need to sell a book. Um, whether I do or not, it's not a, it's never been about the money. So. Uh, 
for, I would like to, to spread the message. I put my heart and soul in this thing, and I think that it can help a lot of people, whether you're 14 struggling with an addiction or, you know, you're 60. So uh, I've got a really good publicist in Toronto, and uh, she's going to work with me uh, over the next six months in, uh, in booking speaking engagements. And uh, for me, that's, that'd be my new career. I don't, I, I, I want to I give back. Do you think there's a future you know, for a program like this, whether it's working with one team, a, a division, working for the Players Association, like, uh, well, I the pride. Why is why is no one taking you up on on the program? I had a good, I had an interesting call yesterday from a guy named Jim Thompson. Uh, old oh yeah, player. I know Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy's awesome. He owns an he owns a junior team in Ontario. And he said, Brant, he said, I, I read your book a couple days ago. What I've done is I've ordered your book for all of my players. And he goes, they have one week to read it. And then we're going to do a Zoom call with you and, and 25 of the players. And they each get to ask you a question about the book. Oh. And I thought that was brilliant. I'm like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Like, it, 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 who knows if it's going to plant a seed. I hope it plants a seed with these young kids. But just to have, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, call, you know, call my team and talk about the book. It's another for these kids to read it and get into it and try and pick my brain on why I didn't stop after the second rehab making all that money or the third or the fourth. So I thought that was a pretty cool initiative. Oh, Brent, I love that idea, man. Uh, we'll have to get you back on later to kind of, you know, in a year or two or see how that's going quickly. Where can where can people get the book Painkiller? Oh, Honestly, anywhere that you buy your books. I mean, Amazon, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, Indigo, it's at Penguin Random House, pretty much anywhere that you can get a book. And uh, do you have a picture of you looking as trendy as you do right now in the book? <laughs> um, let's see here. Well, it's funny because when we were, it took us about four months to do the cover. And I said, hey, guys, here's the deal. They go, what? I go, I don't want my face on this thing. And they're like, what do you mean? I go, I don't want to be anywhere near it. I go, and nothing against any other hockey book. I said, it's not a hockey book. It's, it's, it's different than a hockey book. Yeah. So let's not put my face on there. And, uh, so there's a picture, a couple pictures of me in there, but you got to dig in the middle. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. Okay, so before we let you go, we always have something we like to do uh, called rapid fire on the show. We got a clock going, uh, just quick, quick, rapid answers. Uh, some fun, some serious. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, let's start out back, and this is maybe a tough one, but back in the day, it's 13 years you're sober. What was your drink of choice? Oh, geez, Jack and Coke. And right now, what is your beverage of choice today, 13 years sober? Favorite drink, Five Alive peach flavor. Ooh, okay. The best trait of Daryl Sutter? Uh, compassion. The toughest guy you fought? George LaRocque. Your favorite NHL goal? My first one against Ron Hextall. Oh, I love it. And what was the best advice you got during rehab? Uh, we don't have to catch you uh, altering urine tests. You're going to catch yourself. Ooh, awesome. Brant Myers, this, is, this has been fantastic. Uh, one of my favorite guests here on the DFO Rundown. We really appreciate it. All the best success with Painkiller. I recommend everybody reads it. Uh, they'll love it. Thanks so much for joining us. Brand, congrats thanks, on your success and thanks for being so real.
You bet you guys. Have a great day today. You know how emotional it was for him to talk like got me emotional. I love that. Like I, you know, I hope that other teams recognize the importance of what that role could bring. Yeah, and I wasn't expecting it to be so emotional just because he's talked about it and written it so many times that you would think that, you know, by now it's kind of and I don't want to say rehearsed, but like that's you can tell how painful everything was. I mean, painkiller is such an appropriate term in so many ways uh, for the name of that book. And it's painful to read too. like just to think uh, all that he had gone through, the toll that it took on his family. Um, it's it's difficult to digest. But, man, uh, you know, we talk about this league and and how reactionary it is. I, I hope someone takes him up on his offer because this isn't just some guy that's lived it. This is someone that's certified to help people and has gone through training, not to mention the life experience that, you know, so many of these players aren't even scratching the surface on. So, you know, whether it's the NHLPA or whether it's a team or even some, you know, Brant Myers is assigned to the West Division, whatever it is he can help in so many ways and and let's not kid ourselves this is a real problem that still exists whether it's uh painkiller addiction whether it's alcohol whether it's something off ice financial you know he can help talk to you to get you to the help that you need so um i just appreciate his honesty and how open he is i look at it and you know listening to what jim thompson's doing with, with his junior team and having those young guys like hey if that's the new path for brand that one might be just as impactful if more because he can touch so many people because I love what he said, how this isn't a hockey book. There's so many people in society that have addiction problems. And, and the great part is it's inspiring to see someone who went through it and came out the other side and that, that it is possible regardless of where you're at, you know, in your life, you know, it took Brant five times to go to rehab and, and he finally got it on the fifth time. And I think that's what's inspiring about it and, and makes the book so real. And I didn't like, I don't like to read an entire book before I have a guest on, cause I feel sometimes that I know too much. So uh, I, I had the book, I skimmed a few chapters and now I, I can't wait to really dive into the entire thing. The old Larry King school of interviewing. Yeah, I guess so. But it was, that was fantastic. And I love it. And, and before we go, cause um, I do want to do a, a big shout out to a hockey helps a homeless. That's why I'm wearing the shirt here. Uh, today you can you can help out usually hot they have these big tournaments that go on and a lot of people playing them but obviously because of covid they can't do it right now so you just go to uh, the hashtag canada life cup champ or if you want to donate to help out uh, the homeless uh, you can just text the word hockey to two zero two 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 five bucks ten bucks whatever you can to help them out uh, the homeless it's a it's a big problem anywhere we live in society and this year, unfortunately, uh, we're not allowed to have those type of tournaments where guys like Brant Myers and other NHL alumni volunteer their time for. So uh, hopefully uh, this can get a little bit of awareness. Hey, I was beaking you for your shirt earlier in the week. That rainbow thing was horrendous. This one is looking A-OK -okay on you. Awesome, uh, Frank. That's a great addition to the DFO rundown. Uh, I look forward to our, our next guest, uh, who I think uh, next week is going to be Haley Wickenheiser. The Hall of Famer. Yeah, that's great. Uh, tell then, Frank, have a good week and make sure to wear some gloves when you're shoveling. Yeah, will do. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravali and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. And let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear, and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.